Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Another rocky week on world markets as the S&P 500 experienced its second correction of the year. And as investors try uh, to make money on whatever is coming next with Berkshire Hathaway betting big on a rebound. This as China battles COVID outbreaks across the country, locking down Shanghai and tightening limits on Beijing, all of which will have global economic ramifications compounded by Russia's war on Ukraine. On reporting second quarter earnings, Apple CEO Tim Cook said China's lockdowns could cost the company between four and eight billion dollars. NATO nations are stepping up their assistance to Ukraine with the United States pledging another 33 billion dollars to Kiev larger than most national defense budgets. Major companies reported earnings, including Boeing, CAIC, Crane, Embraer, Garmin, General Dynamics, L3 Harris, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, Raytheon, Teledyne, Textron, as well as MTU, Safran, and Talus. To date, COVID has killed at least 997,000 Americans and more than 6.2 million worldwide. Joining us today, as they do every week, to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the independent research firm Agency Partners uh, in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy uh, here in Washington, D.C. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Happy Sunday. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Vago. Very happy Sunday to you, too. Absolutely, Vago. Thanks. Thank you guys uh, for joining us. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. And Northrop Grumman sponsors our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And HII sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show. And Bell sponsored our coverage of the Army Aviation Association of America's annual symposium. Uh, check out our two weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Everybody, welcome back. Uh, a pleasure. Uh, Ron, walk us through uh, the week and how the group performed. And you know, I want, I want to get to earnings in a minute, especially talk about Boeing, uh, the biggest in the group with some of the biggest challenges with $1.5 billion uh, in abnormal uh, charges that were, were were posted. But first, just get your sort of general takeaways on where the street is, where the group is, how earnings played into this, how China, uh, another topic that we're going to discuss, right? I mean, how all of these dynamic factors are shaping uh, investors and and how they're seeing the aerospace and defense group. Yeah, sure. I'd say I'd say broadly on the market, um, you know, topics of interest this week. I, I'd say were one. Um, not only do you have the the lockdowns in Shanghai, but is Beijing going to lock down? That was a big question that was that was weighing on the market. Two, you know, is the Fed? You know, I heard people talking about not just a fifty point basis point uh, lift in rates, but maybe a seventy five basis point lift in rates. So a lot of concern around where um, rates are going to go with the Fed, what that means for the economy. Uh, we had a, GD, a GD, GDP print that was like a minus a percent and a half. Um, so there's also fears out there of, of stagflation. Nobody wants to hear about that. Uh, so there, there was just a lot of crosswinds in the market that added up to a, a really volatile week. When you look at the aerospace and defense world, I would say the business jet companies actually are those that participate in that market probably did the best on the week. Um, although uh, if you just kind of just a quick quick little rundown, 
I would say the star of the week was Textron. It was at about 2%. Um, General Dynamics was down only about a percent. Northrop Grumman was down about 2%. Lockheed Martin, 3%. Embraer was luckily flat. Again, back to that BizJet theme. Uh, and then Boeing was down almost 16%. And we can talk about that a little bit when we talk about, about earnings. Um, if you look at the 10-year, uh, Treasury is pushing up against 3% again. Uh, it's just a matter of time probably before it goes through that. And then finally, you know, energy prices were hovering, you know, around, you call it that $105 level for WTI crude per barrel. Right. I mean, there were some positive signs in the latest jobs report looking at, uh, you know, some positive trends, even if some of the immediate uh, uh, numbers were not as strong as everybody wanted, not as bad as uh, you might uh, think on uh, at, at first blush. Uh, Sash, talk to us a little bit about European markets and some core uh, earnings uh, takeaways, China takeaways, you name it, takeaways that you're hearing from investors. Yeah, I mean, look, as, as Ron said, it was a very, very... Um, genuinely turbulent week. I mean, there were, you know, there were big intraday moves in a, in a whole lot of stocks in the sector in Europe. I think what was unifying it was that companies that were reporting all talked about the supply chain in one way or another. Some of them are referring to inflation and the degree to which, in, uh, and the speed with which different bits of inflation come through uh, to, the, to their segment of the industry. I'll come back to that in a second. Some of them, there was a lot of focus on the supply of titanium to the aero engine businesses and uh, the degree to which they were or are or are not exposed and how quickly they can resource. So, you know, just to you know, give a, a, a um, broad example, Safran um, acknowledged that 40% plus, plus uh, really, of its titanium comes from Russia, one, uh, you know, generally through uh, vendors, but... Um, that's a whole load. It's going to take them some time to uh, uh, to uh, resource that. Although um, buying uh, Aubert Duval, the uh, the French titanium company, which has effectively been rescued by a consortium of French aerospace companies and the government, is is the medium term way out of that. On the other hand, MTU Aero Engines, probably about ten percent of its titanium uh, comes indirectly from. Uh, Russian vendors, but this is an issue. It's going to take a long time to flush that particular um, bit of sourcing out out of their system. But then, um, you know, there are much, or there are arguably more systemic issues with the uh, uh, supply chain at the moment. I mean, China is just, and the semiconductor issue doesn't go away. But there's just also the, the issue of suppliers who had to cut very deep during the pandemic, and are now finding it very difficult to. Uh, to rehire and to ramp up again. So uh, I think what the companies have discovered in the first quarter is that the there are many more problems with the, with the supply chain than, than they had hoped. And they're going to take a whole lot longer to sort out. I mean, they're, they're almost playing whack-a-mole. You know, they started off probably at the beginning of the year uh, focusing on semiconductors. Now they're realizing it's semiconductors and it's titanium and it's inflation in the, in the, uh, in, in labor costs and it's, uh, how to deal with suppliers, um, you know, two or three tiers down, who simply have, have cut too deep and don't know how to respond. Um, and that, that was a really consistent story this week. Richard, I want to bring you in because there were a lot of cross-cutting themes that we've been talking about uh, on this program. Obviously, uh, titanium, not just sponge, but finished components. Uh, there are other people who can pick up the slack, but it will take them time uh, to do that. I think solving anything takes uh, spending a little bit of money. You have to spend money to make money. I think that 
sometimes there's a tendency of thinking that <laughs> you're going to make money without spending money. Uh, um, and, and it, you know, prices go up for the guys who are making it in the near term. Right. I mean, so if you're non-Russian, uh, you may use that, your, your, uh, earnings potential to, uh, your advantage. And, and clearly that's a little bit of what we've been seeing in this as well, uh, aside from just plain old fashioned supply and demand, sort of your sense on, on where we are and where we're going and what do you think the big issues are, especially in terms of China and where China's going, uh, because it's getting bad to worse there, right? Even as things get more normal, more people are catching uh, COVID. That means that it's becoming an endemic thing, not a pandemic thing, uh, which is a you know as bad as the virus is when it hits people. If you're fully vaccinated, it's not that not as bad. So, to give us your sense on where we are, where we're going. Yeah, absolutely. China is, of course, the big uh, question mark. You know, the thing we're consistently hearing is that China, long run, is the far bigger challenge to the aviation sector than the Ukraine uh, war is. Um, and yeah, it's it's just clearly not going to get better before it, it probably gets worse. And I think what's worst of all is we don't really know um, to what extent this is incompetence and bad luck and bad epidemiology or whatever else, or if it genuinely is a certain degree of political malice, the people who are being clamped down upon are kind of the elites, you know, the urban dwellers who are middle class or upper middle class or whatever. And uh, I, you know, I, I, my favorite theme to keep harping upon is that China's air travel slowdown is a pre-existing condition. It predates the pandemic and it was a remarkable slowdown. You know, again, my favorite stat going from 12% plus growth to just over 5% growth in the space of a year. And it appeared to be very politically driven, like, you know, consumption is out, being wealthy is out, uh, get your Mao jacket to the dry cleaners. I can't say for sure, I don't think anyone can, that what's going on right now with the clampdown has uh, 100% to do with the, the disease and, and absolutely nothing to do with a continuation of this clampdown on, on, on wealth and a market economy. Uh, that's what I think is most concerning. And of course, on top of that, you also just have bad policy, bad vaccine, bad approach to things, and, and again, some bad luck. But I, this is not good. And it's the only, I guess, if there is good news, it's the only dark spot in the recovery. You know, everything else is still nicely on track for a 4Q 2023 recovery to the air travel peak. Um, a bunch of my colleagues at Aerodynamic were at the MRO America show. And uh, sent back reports from all of the, the shop folks, you know, uh, saying basically from a capacity and demand standpoint on, on aftermarket and sustainment, things were also nicely back uh, on, on that path, you know, towards sex sometime in the second half of 2023, strong growth. And um, actually, some of them reported that even China shop visits weren't that bad, I guess, probably because before this latest round of clampdowns, uh, things had been recovering. So maybe equipment needs repair, especially stuff that had been flown to the limits of the, the green zone before entering or rotated between green zone components and before entering red. So we'll, we'll see whether that plateaus out or whether that just falls. Um, but either way, China is indeed the biggest single question mark in the market today. And, and that China question uh, exists more broadly, and especially for Boeing, for example, right? Uh, as uh, the, the United States and China continue to drift apart and Russia continues to drift them apart uh, a little bit more uh, profoundly. Ron, uh, let's uh, go to you uh, on uh, to start the earnings conversation, but also started with Boeing uh, and talk a little bit about the abnormal charge, a little bit about the write down. 
Um, and sort of where we are, I mean, you said this company stock was down 16%. Uh, from the company's perspective, um, they, they thought they did pretty well uh, in, the, in the conference call. Uh, on the other hand, there were those who would observe that um, you know, the man who is now the chief executive of the company sat on the company's board when some fundamentally, um, some decisions that are now biting them were made, right? This, um, I, I know that you played a, a prominent role in the call in part by asking the tough question, hey, how are you addressing these performance problems uh, across uh, so many programs, uh, you know, across the entire portfolio, really? Um, you know, walk, walk, walk us through what the key takeaways from this call were. Sash, I want to get your take and then Richard, yours, before we, we talk about uh, the other companies and how they fared. Maybe before I get dig down on Boeing, let me just, just hit some big takeaways from a lot of companies reported this week. You, know, you went down the, the laundry list of companies and <clears throat> there were some clear trends that we saw. And in most of the defense businesses, um, excuse me, top lines were eh, a little bit soft. Um, that said, however... Most companies articulated pretty well uh, that the upside you would see from the budget environment we're in, it's going to take some time to work its way through the system. And uh, my sense is the market um, uh, adjusted to that. Um, you know, there's, you always get in a situation where, you know, when stocks are soft or people are going to come in and buy, and I definitely think we're in a market where there's, there's buyers for defense. Um, but we saw, you know, top, top lines a little bit soft. Um, margins generally were pretty good. Um, cash flow is lumpy across companies, and, and it can be in the first quarter. That's not a surprise for a lot of different companies. Like I mentioned before, BizJets were the big winner. Uh, you know, uh, Gulfstream had pretty spectacular numbers, um, as did Textron, and, and their commentary about going forward on uh, volume and pricing and so on and so forth was um, where, where you might expect it to be, maybe to even a little bit better, and, and the market reacted to that. And then one of the things that everybody was highlighting was uh, what you know. What, Richard just mentioned um, and Sasha, so the supply chain issues and supply chain across the board, you know, inflation for materials, labor, transportation, that kind of thing. Um, so I'd say that, you know, on the Boeing call specifically, uh, and the point I was trying to make was there isn't any other company that we follow where pretty much every major program has taken a charge or is in some form of trouble. Uh, and the ones that aren't are, are maybe very, 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 very legacy programs where you'd be kind of astonished if they were at this point. Um, and, and just the point of the question was really, what are you doing to readjust to, to fix that? And, you know, I, I don't, I don't think I got a satisfactory answer, but um, you know, it is, it is, it is what it is. And, and, and ultimately, right. I mean, the company didn't get to the situation it's in over a weekend. Uh, it took you know, many years um, and it's going to take years to turn it around. Uh, and it, as outsiders, you're not sitting around the, you know, the tables where decisions are made. You just really want some guidance on what's, you know, what direction you're doing, what are the changes you're making, really, where are you going? Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's without getting, you know, some color on that, it's really hard as an outsider to start, uh, you know, feeling, feeling what's going on, particularly when more and more charges happen on programs. And, and then you have to bear in mind as well, too, when many of these program decisions were made, Boeing was in a much different position. I mean, the stock was approaching $400. They were spitting out cash. Everything was kind of going swimmingly. So some of these quote unquote investments they could make in defense um, were, I guess, thought of as maybe defensements or, or as, in, as investments, or they were willing to take on more risk on defense programs. Well, the, the, the tide has turned, right? Things are very, very different. The balance sheet's in much worse shape. And some of the stuff in, in some ways is coming back to haunt them. And it's, it's you know, kind of where to from here um, so, I mean, I, I think that's, you know, kind of where we are on Boeing. 
I mean, the company has had a tendency of buying into programs historically, right? I mean, they got into trouble some years ago uh, for doing that as well. Um, the difference has been maybe not as bad of an execution impact on, for example, things like, you know, triple seven or, um, you know, although there was, you know, missing the, uh, the next generation, right? I mean, that cycle was a little bit uh, delayed. Um, but then again, you know, some, some miscues also on uh, 717, et, et cetera. Uh, Sash, let me bring you into the uh, discussion uh, as well. And sort of your, uh, you know, maybe if we can get your Boeing take, uh, and then I'll hit you with the broader take, or, you know, if you want to do the same thing that, that, that Ron just did, sort of give us your sort of appraisal and then your, your Boeing takeaway. First of all, Ron asked absolutely the right question and got a very, very poor answer. Um, uh, and, and companies that are not aware that they are, let's be honest, screwing up and consistently getting stuff wrong in terms of program management, even in defense where your customer generally wants to protect you because they want your capability. But customer, companies that keep on getting it wrong um, are a real problem for investors, and rightly so. Uh, so it was absolutely the right question, Ron. Kudos to you for that. And the answer was lousy. Um, our other concern with Boeing is the, um, the denial about what this company needs to do to get out of it and the degree to which um, management or the board do not seem to accept that they're going to need to recapitalize in some form. Uh, and I think this comes back to why the comment from Mr. Calhoun very early on about he was only sitting in the front row, he wasn't involved in the decisions is very, very misleading. Ultimately, what he's trying to do is trying to, uh, you know, whether whether um, consciously or not, you know, not show that the decisions made in terms of consistent buybacks, particularly in the, uh, you know, the 2010s period, uh, were fundamentally wrong. But, you know, 45 billion of debt is just the wrong starting point when you need to fund a, a new narrow body. A big research and technology program to, to address decarbonization, because that's the issue for the next decade. Um, rationalize the geographical footprint in the US, probably put final assembly lines for new programs uh, much closer to the end markets. You know, Airbus's big success was putting a final assembly line for the A320 at Tianjin. They went from 10% of the Chinese market to 50% of the Chinese market. Go figure. Um, so, you know, we, we think not accepting that the company needs to recapitalize is an incredibly dangerous uh, mindset for Boeing management to be in and presumably the Boeing boards to be in. And we really hope that they change that view because otherwise, you know, does Boeing make it through the, the decade as a serious competitor in civil aerospace? I'm not sure about that. What's going to be very interesting, um, Airbus has got a capital markets day coming up at the, the very, very beginning of June. And the question we're going to be asking is, you know, how, what do they think the market shares can get to over the decade? And, you know, how hard are Airbus going to try to keep Boeing going as a weakened competitor? You know, I, what's, their, what's their game plan for market share? Uh, and for, um, you know, in what is clearly a very different situation to where we were five years ago. So, yeah, that, you know, that, that's, that's our take on, on uh, the Boeing Q1. I'll come back to for uh, European earnings in a, in a minute, uh, but want to go to Richard uh, for his take 
uh, as as well. Um, and I've got one follow up question to ask uh, ask ask you all. But go ahead, Richard. I mean, you know, you've written that the only thing that explains the way the company is approaching this is if they are looking at it as a breakup target. Uh, I know that that's controversial, and you know, the company says that that's not the case. Uh, you know, from their standpoint, um, you know, we we are working on it. We understand the problems that we have ahead of us, but you know, we do feel like we've got a handle on them at this point. From from your perspective. Um, you know, what, what jumped out at you and, you know, on, on the call and more broadly from results and where do you think we're going? Yeah. I mean, again, kudos to Ron for asking the tough question and, um, also kudos to him for identifying the pat the pattern, the pre-existing pattern before I had, uh, I'd written a piece about six or seven years ago saying that they were using cash flow from commercial to buy market share in military. So the idea of, uh, <laughs> Saying this all came out of the blue was uh, absurd, disingenuous, embarrassing. Yeah, I mean, that's my knowledge. The TX program, when the T7, which resulted, I think, so far in about 800 million in write-offs, I think it was the only contract win I've ever seen which came with a write-off out of the box. Like, hooray, we won! We're writing off hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, <laughs> these were aggressive bids. Now, the idea of blaming Trump for the Air Force One contract was politically brilliant, but of course, ridiculous. You know, it it gives Trump a lot of credit for being a tough negotiator, but the reality is that nothing changed about the budget or the contract. It was simply them being aggressive and then screwing up an execution. Do they really want to break up the company? I, I you know, I posit this as an idea. I mean, but what are the what are the explanations for like a decade of endless, uh, unexpected, quote unquote, <laughs> charges and just horrible programmatic disasters? as well as an earnings call that didn't address the big issue, one of the biggest issues they face of the 737 MAX 10 and whether it's going to be certified or get a waiver or something. These are huge issues. So either you know, top management doesn't really want to run the company or is in a state of denial or a breakup. I'm not so sure I see a third way out of this because this is just bizarre. It doesn't mean the company is truly screwed, that it's got no hope. I mean, they've got great products, great people, great technologies, but what's needed is leadership, top level leadership that says, we have problems, we need to fix them. And until that happens, I'll either consider them to be in denial or just interested in breaking it all up. Um, let me uh, quickly ask you for a definition, right? I mean, there are people who may not understand what the Max 10 legislative issue is uh, because they are up against a calendar. Um, give us kind of a qu quick take on what that means, right, for, for those who might be, you know, looking at this and not fully appreciating what it might be. Right? Yeah, I mean, basically, what, what the issue is. Yeah, basically, because of changed FAA regulations involving aircraft certification, they don't get this thing certified, I think, by December 31st, the MAX 10 version, then they have to go back and install a an ICAS system that is now mandated for aircraft that began the certification process after that certain point. Um, <laughs> that means either they get a waiver, because assuming that they can't make that deadline because they've got all sorts of problems and you know, 777X is obviously its own little world of hurt. And then there's the 787 ulcer. So assuming they don't make it, they need a waiver. Pete DeFazio, other key players have said, you're not getting a waiver. They might still get a waiver, but if they don't, then for years, at least probably two or three, maybe four, they'll have really nothing to deliver between 180 seats and 240, which is where Airbus at this point is piling up a giant fortune of cash, courtesy of the A321neo order book. 
Um, and more people are just going to get in line there because while the Max 10, Max 10 isn't perfect, it does have its virtues for people who don't need the range of a 321neo. Um, and it would be good if Boeing had that as a sellable, deliverable product. So this is a major area of concern that they don't appear to be providing a great deal of leadership with. Um, Ron, let me uh, get your take on uh, at least an update on the big programs, right? I mean, do we know any more on uh, 777X, on 787, uh, on Max Backlog? Uh, and right, I mean, timing is everything. If you have things that are delayed, uh, right, that perhaps can accentuate the impact of further supply chain. To, you know what I mean? This is like a cascading domino effect. And now you're throwing titanium on top of everything uh, as well, right? I mean, I've, I've run into people in Washington, right? We're, you know, 99% are, you know, let, we have to do everything to help Ukraine. And I want to get to that in a minute in terms of what the earnings impact of, of dropping $33 billion into this uh, defense economy means. Uh, but then there are also people who are like, you know, uh, this you know, we should just be interested in ourselves. And, and this is cutting off our sources of titanium. It's cutting off our sources of energy. We've got to have dialogue with the Russians, right? I mean, they, they don't want to say don't punish Russia. They try to find other reasons why not to punish Russia, right? But, you know, that's that's an issue too. So, you know, what, what, do, what do we now, what do we know more now about these important programs that we did in a week ago? Yeah, I mean, a, a couple of thoughts. Um, I mean, when the, the airlines reported last week and uh, many of the U.S. airlines anyway, um, reported last week and um, mentioned how some of their 737 MAX deliveries uh, shifted into 2023, uh, some of their 787s shifted into uh, 2023. Um, you know, Boeing did say on their, on their call and in their release that they uh, did submit paperwork to the FAA about getting... Uh, 787 uh, started again, delivery started again, although, um, and and probably, you know, smartly, they didn't say exactly when it's going to happen. They didn't want to front run the FAA. But my sense is their hope is that they can start delivering airplanes in the second half of the year. Um, and it's, you know, remember, it was going to be end of last year, at the beginning, you know, first quarter, second quarter, it looks like it's going to be sometime in Q3, as of now, for 787 deliveries to start. Um and then on the on the max, they, they 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 couldn't say a heck of a lot in terms of uh, the the max ten deadline. However, they did say on their call that you know that date was never put there as a as an impediment to prevent them ultimately from certifying the airplane. We'll we'll see how that goes. I mean, you've seen the headlines. Um, um, there's some folks in the house. Um, uh, Representative DeFazio actually said, no, we're not going to give them an extension or whatever, but we'll see where that plays out, right? And I guess that becomes political on some level. Um, but um, so we'll, we'll uh, that, that's what we know on the max. Um, there's been, you know, some steady cadence of, of order activity, although as Richard has highlighted, and we all can see, I mean, you know, Boeing has, excuse me, Airbus has outsold them in, in no short part because of the, uh, the A321 family of airplanes. Um, so it's, you know, that's kind of where we are on triple seven. They pushed it out to 2025. Um, and my understanding there, there's, there's several different issues. There's some technical stuff going on, but then 777 itself gets, uh, 777X gets very complicated from a certification perspective because my understanding is you have a, a, a controls avionics backbone of the airplane that's sort of some sort of hybrid between the, um, the legacy 777 and a 787. 
that gets complicated. Uh, and then you've got the different material for the wing, your carbon fiber wing. Uh, and then ultimately, I think the question becomes, and this is a question I asked many years ago when I was taking a tour out in, uh, in Everett, how do you certify this thing as a triple seven? Is it really a triple seven anymore with all those changes? Um, and that's probably my guess, a fundamental question that's being asked right now, given, and given the delay out to 2025, my guess is it's being asked pretty seriously um, on, on the program at the moment. So um, that's, that, that's what we know. Uh, I would say this though, however, on the titanium front, uh, if you go back to you know, 2013, 2014, and uh, everything that happened with Crimea, uh, Boeing at that point really did start to begin to uh, reduce its dependency on, on Russia for titanium. So uh, as of the, you know, the Ukrainian um, situation at that point, per the uh, Department of Commerce, uh, Boeing was sourcing maybe a third of its titanium from Russia, which isn't in material, but it's a, a lot less than it used to be. Uh, and would be you know, less disruptive to move someplace else in the world um, uh, if and when they need to. Another point on titanium I would add is Raytheon on their call was pretty crystal clear that they are done with Russia full stop for everything until everything gets sorted out, um, period. I mean, they were, I mean, they, uh, Greg Hayes, CEO, uh, chairman of Raytheon couldn't have been any more clear that you know, Raytheon is just not dealing with Russia on any level until everything gets back to some sat if if and when everything gets back to uh, some satisfactory um, you know equilibrium on our geopolitical level. Uh, yeah, interesting, um, Sash. Let's uh, shift gears. Ron gave a nice sort of roundup. Ron, do you have anything you want to add? Uh, right. I mean, L3, we didn't mention it, obviously one of our sponsors, but Chris Kubasic in the chair now uh, and another positive uh, quarter and, and results. But any any uh, other takeaways before we sort of shift gears and get uh, uh, yeah, maybe, everybody? Maybe, maybe one more thing I would add quickly is I was down at the uh, uh, MRO show down in Dallas this week um, and uh, saw, you know, Kevin's, um, uh, excuse me, saw Richard's partner, Kevin uh, Michaels down there, Dr. Kevin Michaels uh, at at MRO. And, and probably one of my bigger takeaways, and I think this is a pretty important point, is the sense that, you know, there's all these airplanes that got parked. And I think the immediate reaction uh, thinking was that uh, many of those would get scrapped pretty quickly. And that, in fact, is not happening. That those aircraft, many of them that are just kind of more middle aged, they're coming back into service for two reasons. One, airlines need the capacity and they need it fast so they can get this much quicker than they can get new airplanes, one, and two, it doesn't really impact their balance sheet like new airplanes would. Uh, so you know, why that ultimately becomes pretty important is if you're in the market selling um, parts, you know, maintenance repair, overhaul, spare parts, um, there was a worry that the, the, the market could become a wash and use serviceable materials, basically, you know, translation, use parts that you can use. Um, and if, if, if this is right, and those aircraft get scrapped out at a slower pace, then you know, this overwhelming wave of used serviceable material may not actually happen. And you could see more pricing in um, the aftermarket for those that sell parts, which would be positive for you know, many companies in the industry. Sash, uh, let's get a uh, quick survey. I, I want to get into the defense impact here uh, in a minute of, of what it means for the equivalent of a NATO nation's defense budget to be going for Ukraine aid. Um, obviously, 20 billion of that is um, aid, aid. But before we get there, 
uh, Sash, I want to get your sense on what we heard from uh, MTU, from Safran, and from uh, Talas, obviously uh, big uh, European uh, engine makers and, and electronics uh, companies, uh, and whether or not we heard, you know, what did we hear, for example, on the titanium front, Safran, uh, a very important engine maker partnered on the CFM 56 program with uh, General Electric, obviously, for decades. Sort of give us, give us your sense on what we heard from uh, the big, uh, some of these big European names. Yeah, okay. So um, Safran, first of all, you know, Safran can't get out of Russian titanium um, as quickly as Raytheon Technologies thinks, thinks it can. Uh, and they, they acknowledge, they, I mean, all of the sourcing is indirect. It comes through suppliers of components and sub-assemblies and so forth, because uh, they don't machine a great deal of titanium themselves. But um, they said it is going to take some time. And, um, you know, as I uh, said earlier on, they are. Um, they have bailed out a uh, a French titanium forgings maker, uh, Aubert Duval, with, uh, along with Airbus and the French government, and they helped to, to hope to create a, a nascent French capability to do all this. But that is uh, many quarters away. Let's be honest. It's going to take. I suspect it's going to take them a couple of years to to sort of flush Russian titanium out of the system. MTU may, may be a bit quicker because they started at a, at a much lower point, but. Uh, the, you know, these supply chains are very hard to shift, even harder to recertify. What else did we learn? Um, MTU was fascinating. MTU, I think it's the first time I've heard them cautious about their full-year guidance at this stage of the year. Uh, and their cautious comes back to China. Uh, you know, they just don't know what's going to happen. You know, China ended Q1, end of March. They ended that with full shots. But as they come through April, then uh, maintenance, repair, and overhaul shop at Zhuhai, a big joint venture with uh, China Southern, is seeing a hiatus in um, uh, new engines coming into it. And Safran said, uh, you know, mirroring this, that CFM 56 uh, um, flight hours uh, started falling catastrophically. Uh, it's off, off, our words, not theirs, uh, towards the end of March. Uh, in China, um, because you know Chinese airlines just have cut back their schedules enormously as the uh, lockdowns have happened. So China is the thing that is causing an immense amount of trading worry uh, among our companies. What was the interesting stuff that came out of the two engine companies? They both talked about narrow body rates. Um, they have clearly signed new narrow body uh, forecasts um, with Airbus. Interestingly, they've they've been sworn to a, you know, um, a, a vow of secrecy. So they wouldn't tell us what it is, although Safran said it's at least the level that we were at before the pandemic. And that means 65 and beyond uh, for, the, for the A320 per month. Um, what will be interesting is before the pandemic, Safran GE had a 58% share of uh, the Airbus market, and that was signed in their, in their deal. I wonder what it will be now. You know, I wonder whether Raytheon's been able to uh, or United Hatton Whitney has been able to claim any of that back with the uh, geared turbofan. The other thing that Safran said that was really interesting was the um, uh, the, the increase in production rate for the uh, 737 MAX, which is currently at 31 a month, has been pushed out to, and um, the increases is to, you know, effectively beyond the end of this year uh, and into next year. Now, Boeing said that as well, but it's always interesting to get the, the cross-feed from the uh, suppliers. So, you know, the aero engine companies, they were, they had a, perfectly good first quarter, but I've never heard such caution about the outlook for, you know, what is a, uh, we would love to be called a normal trading year uh, so early on. So, you know, watch this space as we go through Q2. 
Talis now, um, much more of a defense play, although interestingly, what's keeping Talis going at the moment? It's their space business. Their space business is blowing the lights out with uh, commercial satellite winds. Um, they are probably the number one commercial, large commercial satellite company at the moment. Uh, and that's a business that's growing comfortably in double digits. And it's a very, you know, it's dominating their incoming Q, Q1 orders. I was absolutely fascinated with the, uh, the Talis Q1 statement by the degree to which they managed to avoid using the U word at all, Ukraine. Um, they sort of hedged it a lot and they talked about, you know, the new geo geopolitical uh, situation. But I do wonder why companies are so reluctant to talk about it. Where there was a very interesting sort of echo in terms of um, a lot of analyst calls that I was on this week and a couple of company meetings, the companies in Europe are playing it very coy about how quick the uh, the Ukraine benefit, Ukraine dividend, or whatever we want to call it, is going to come through to them. I think unless you are a munitions company and you can see the incoming orders starting to pick up right now, they simply don't have the um, visibility or the confidence yet to call the timing of this upturn. They feel very happy saying it's a five-year, it's a 10-year upturn in defense. And, you know, the entire of the defense environment, clearly, the, you know, that, that has changed from their point of view to the good but 2022 some of them doubt whether they'll see a die um uh, and you know from their point of view i hope i hope they're wrong i hope they're being cautious but it was a um pretty much every company that said look we know stuff has changed we know frankly we know the world has changed but we ain't seeing it in our, in our order book yet richard uh, let me let me get your sense right how do you think uh this spending increase is going to manifest itself and the impact it's going to have um, certainly on the U.S. side, right? I mean, we're depleting our stocks just like the United Kingdom has depleted and other nations have depleted their stocks, uh, right? I mean, some of these nations that have transferred capability uh, to Ukraine have looked to the United States to backfill it, whether it's with a patriot capability or what have you. Um, it does highlight shortcomings um, and it's astonishing to say, but $773 billion may not be enough money uh, clearly, there are some members of Congress who don't think uh, think so. Talk to us about what this $33 billion means for the ecosystem. And Ron, want to get your uh, sense on it uh, as well, right? Because there are some things we'll be buying from the Europeans. Most of this stuff appears is going to be for U.S. stuff and 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 go for you know aid. Richard, take it away. Yeah, I mean, Sash, of course, is exactly right. You've got to view this as a long-term opportunity at this point because it's obvious that there's some significant industrial bottlenecks. Uh, you know, the most if if we had had this conversation a month ago or two ago, and of course we did. You know, everybody was saying, including us, that well, the first priority is going to be ammunition, and uh, you know, PGMs to deplete. You know, a, you know, badly uh, run down uh, to to replete badly depleted stockpiles. Um, Clearly, there are big challenges, you know, up to and including the Stinger missile, which apparently can't be built for some time just because of, you know, various obsolescent items that need to be either swapped out or, or started up again or whatever else. Um, this is going to take some time. I mean, I think it's important to remember that the industrial base in the U.S., while it's, of course, very big, um, is, you know, it, it still reflects the post-Cold War downturn. You know, it's not materially much bigger. A couple of new minor players that have added to the mix, like General Atomics or, you know, Kratos or whatever. But for the most part, the players are the same as they were uh, prior to 9-11 uh, with, you know, additional mergers and consolidation since then. And back then, the procurement budget was, what, 45, 50 billion. Today, it's three times that. 
um, we're having issues here scaling up. We're going to have issues, especially in a time of materials uh, inflation, labor inflation, whatever else. Uh, this is going to, this is, yeah, exactly as I said, a long term opportunity and, uh, and not a lot else. It, you know, on the other hand, what a long term opportunity. I mean, there's obviously some doubt about Olaf Scholz's commitment to growing Germany's uh, defense budget. And that's been a, a bit of a political issue in recent days. But um, everybody else seems to be executing on it, especially in the U.S. A little concerned. There's some news flow about uh, some parts of the U.S. Republican Party. I guess the Trumpist elements being anti-NATO. And that was, uh, you know, that's been pretty clear on the campaign trail leading into the Ohio primary and whatever else. That's a little concerning because that implies that on the on the right side, which is not where you normally expect to hear this from, you could see some pushback against the kind of numbers that people have been advocating with the rest of the Republican Party and, and for the Biden administration, too. Uh, that's something that needs to be watched, I think. Uh, but overall, you're looking at, yes, uh, we're going to have procurement budgets over $150 billion, R&D budgets over $130 billion. Uh, that's fantastic. And of course, the additional or the incremental 60 to $80 billion a year that people have anticipated in European funding, that's coming through too. It's just coming through at a time when there are these major bottlenecks. And not only that, there's this time of inflation. So it couldn't have happened at a worse moment, but at least it'll happen in the long run. Ron, what do you think the impact's going to be? Yeah, I mean, you can't imagine that some of that, I mean, from a, from a U.S. point of view, <clears throat> isn't going to flow back to the, to the U.S. contractors just simply because the, uh, uh, call it the, the NATO industrial base ex-U.S. just isn't large enough to satisfy everything that needs to happen. Um, and, and I think a point you made, right, if you look at all the, the NATO countries, uh, $33 billion, um, is more than uh, what Italy um, spends on defense. Um, so really, it would put you know, the U.S. is number one, the United Kingdom is number two, Germany is number three, France is number four, and then the U.S. again is number five, just based on that one plus up, right? I mean, that plus up alone would be the fifth largest country spending in, in NATO by itself. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely going to have an impact. Uh, and it's hard to imagine that um, a chunk of that isn't going to flow back to the U.S. contract. It's Sash. Uh, let me uh, ask you a quick question, right? I mean, uh, the war in Ukraine is continuing. Russia has made some incremental gains in the east. It's, uh, you know, I mean, it's sort of funny. People are uh, sort of shocked, like, no, Russia said it's only going to be in the east. But now there's this uh, Transnistria. We want to take the whole south, the whole east of the country. Right. Uh, and we want to be able to have free access to Moldova uh, for oppressed Russians uh, there. It looks like a false flag operation may have happened last uh, week uh, in blowing up a Russian uh, radio, uh, Russian TV radio transmission tower in that in that area and a couple of other actions. Sort of give us your sense on where the war is, where the war is going, because now NATO leaders are much more open and honest. This is about helping Ukraine win. But it's also about making sure that Russia loses uh, and is depleted and weaker uh, as a consequence. I mean, I think Lloyd Austin spoke for many to say, like, look, we don't want Russia doing this again. If they're stupid enough to start this, we're going to help finish it. Um, you know, where 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 are we now? Uh, what are you seeing and spotting with your sort of seasoned military eye? It's very difficult to talk about the front lines because they are still remarkably diffused. But, you know, there has been that the, the Russians have put more military focus on the south and east. And uh, that clearly puts a lot of pressure on the Ukraine because 
you know, the Ukrainian forces in the south and east and, and you know, in the Donbass area are in more of a salience than any military would feel comfortable being in, albeit one that is several hundred, hundred miles wide. Um, uh, and I think that the important thing about that 33 billion, however it is spent, is that it gets to Ukraine very, very fast indeed. The idea that um, we can wait for the manufacturers to build stuff before it's shipped to Ukraine. No, that, that you know, that, that's far too late. It needs to get there in, in weeks rather than quarters. Um, uh, and the Ukrainians will probably make very, very good use of it. European nations are becoming better aligned with the US in realizing that they have to ship out some of their best stuff, um, almost anything that is available. Uh, and the Ukrainians will end up with a very, very um, mixed uh, you know, fleet of equipment. You know, we'll, we'll worry about that after the war, frankly. But if European nations don't ship out most of their, you know, a lot of their best stuff and it's heavy stuff. So um, heavy artillery, uh, armored vehicles now, heavy armored vehicles, anti-aircraft tanks in the case of Germany, main battle tanks uh, in the case of Poland, if they don't ship those out in, in um, the coming couple of weeks or so, uh, the Ukrainians won't have the time to spend that $33 billion um, uh, and, to, and to use it uh, wisely. And you're absolutely right. You know, um, th th there was a wonderful... Um, comment wide, quite widely reported by uh, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, where he said, you know, uh, you know, NATO is fighting a proxy war against us. I shared a crocodile tear on a few, I tell you. Um, for the first time in about six decades, they are, you know, the Russians can dish it out, but they, they can't take it. Um, they've been masters at, at proxy wars um, and finding it very, very uncomfortable when they happen to them. But I think what is interesting, uh, and your, your point about Transistor is that even though in some terms the russians are slightly on the defensive you know they're not having everything thrown away but they're very very good at continuing to play mind games so diverting attention from one front to another um you know the idea that the war uh, in the north kiev and kharkiv is over no it isn't it's just changed character for a bit and so i think they are keeping a lot of pressure on uh, the ukrainians and um that aid's got to get there very very soon we did a Quite interesting. Um, I mean, it was a you know back, uh, um, back in the fact packet analysis, but just looking at how do you ship tens and tens of thousands of tons of artillery ammunition to Ukraine? Um, you don't do it by C seventeen, I tell you, because you you will just exhaust the fleet. And I suspect there isn't enough runway capacity for all the C seventeen to fly that in. So we're going to start seeing large ammunition trains going across Europe, which causes vulnerability uh, of itself. But that's going to be absolutely essential. The other point I'd make just about the, you know, the NATO spending and the, um, the implied NATO spending uh, via the US uh, plus up is that a lot of this cash has got to go fast to subcontractors and sub-subcontractors and sub-sub-subcontractors. Um, it's got to go to chemical companies to ramp up production of uh, nitroglycerin because if, if production of that does not increase very, very quickly indeed, then you can't build uh, the munitions, whether you know propellant or otherwise, um, to have the effect you want. At some stage, even NATO artillery uh, stocks are going to start. Uh, ammunition stocks are going to run down, and it, a lot of money is going to have to be spent quickly on um, propping the supply chain up for fairly obscure semiconductors, because that's what most of these missile and anti-armor uh, munitions need. Um, and in fact, we're already seeing some of the companies, um, Saab, for example, are diverting some of their civil. Uh, semiconductor production 
um, which is hyper specialized. You know, this is not the stuff we would ever find in phones, but they're producing those circuit boards for, for other things. They're diverting that to, uh, to their military business now. And there's going to have to be a, an enormous effort to, uh, to get the, sub, the, the, the very bottom levels of the supply chain up and running as quickly as possible. I think companies are going to have to spend on working capital ahead of getting the cash from their governments in some case. Saab admitted that last week. Talis sort of acknowledged it this week as well. Um, you know, the check is in the post. Actually, I think the check will arrive, but they cannot, um, you know, if, if we rely on the normal government process of allocating contracts, um, the supply chain won't, won't be up and running much before the end of Q3, in our view. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Appreciate it. I uh, hope you guys have a terrific week uh, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks so much, Vago. Yeah, thanks very much, Vago. Pleasure as always. Great to be here, Vago. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.